they, th- this is, this is a lesson on, uh, the title is a meal that makes you hungrier. And it's, it's a lesson I taught to the strength to strength, uh, series a week ago. And, um, I think it's a pretty good bet that most of you were not on the live session for Strength to Strength. And some of you were smiling, and you know why. Because Strength to Strength, they have the lessons at 6 a.m. on Saturday morning, okay? So that, so it's not going to interfere with the rest of your day unless you happen to be sleeping at that hour. So so uh, if you weren't there, um, I hope you were doing something that's equally important uh, at that, that point in time. So... Uh, I really wanted to, to share these things. And, and it, it, overview, just what I want to talk about is personal devotion to the Word of God. I love the Word of God, and I love I love it all, and it's been such a joy to, to study it, to continue learning after decades, to see new things. And, um, and this, this, what I want to talk about, devotion to the Word of God, and this is very practical. It's extremely practical, uh, and, and I want to talk about... Uh, the, the importance of it and some keys to it. And I'm going to be using three parables. Okay. One of them I made up and two of them are based in the scriptures, but you're going to, some people are going to say, Chuck, you're cheating. That's not a parable. That's a real story. Well, it's a real story, but there's a, there's a, a level of meaning to it as well. So I tell three, three parables. And unfortunately, I mean, here it is right now. It's about quarter of 12 and people are starting to get hungry. You know, we got some, some, we got the, the cookers uh, over in the side. So there's little, little aroma going through the route. People thinking, when's he going to stop talking? We can have lunch. Okay. All three parables have to do with food and eating. All right. So those will prepare you for lunch. Maybe your stomach will reinforce the urgency of the lesson here. So the first parable I want to tell, this is the parable of the, of the of the the whole wheat bread or parable of the enriched bread. Okay, uh, when I was growing up a, as a child, my mother would go to the store and get Wonder Bread. You know, help build strong bodies twelve ways, and it's really spongy. You know, make peanut butter and jelly sandwiches with it, and I thought this is bread. This is bread. So, in my late teens and twenties, I went off to off to college. And I went to school in Northern California, and I was definitely, I had long hair, and I was living with the, let's say, the earthy, crunchy crowd, okay, out there. With, with, it was a co-op, it was, it was full of vegetarians, and it was definitely uh, not in the mainstream, let's put it this way, all right? So uh, um, lots of stories I probably should, should not tell you about that part of my life. But one of the things that we did, I learned how to cook. Not like most people, you know, for two, three, four people. I learned how to cook for 50 people. And I just take the normal recipe and you multiply it by 10. So that's, I learned how to cook as part of a weekly co-op. And one of the things that the, that the, that we would do on the co-op is we would bake bread for the entire house the night before. So the people wake up in the morning. And, and what we would do in baking the bread, being an earthy crunchy group, is that we would take the wheat berries and with a hand grinder, we would stone grind the wheat down to flour and then bake bread from this. And, you know, when, when it's baking at night, the whole house is filled with this incredible smell of fresh bread. Everybody comes down and, and you know, so let's eat it all up right away. So, but I, so I learned how to, I learned how to bake bread 
at a fairly early age uh, from and doing it all the way from from grinding the grain myself. And and lo and behold, the bread that we baked was nothing like the Wonder Bread I knew as a child. All right. For one thing, Wonder Bread is white. The wheat berries, as many of you know, are dark brown. So um, and, and, and there's a story behind this. The the wheat berries, they contain that there's the brown outer coating, which is the, the bran. And then there's the white on the inside, which is the flour we're used to that comes from that. And then there's the germ. You, know, you think of wheat germ. Well, that's the that's the, the kind of the heart of the seed of the flour right there. And um, what happens is the wheat berries will last a long time. But once you mill them or grind them, they start to degrade fairly rapidly and they lose the nutritional value. So uh, what happened in, in the history? So in the past, people would use whole grain and they grind it themselves. They grind it in their homes or they grind it. The local, the local miller would grind it. And then somebody in the 18, between the 1870s and the 1890s, and in the U.S. and Europe, there was a change that took place where they went, they moved from stone grinding into grinding with ceramic or steel rollers. And what they could do when they did this was they could separate out, they would grind it between the rollers, and they could separate out the white flour from the bran and the germ. And there were a number of advantages to, to, to separating the bran and the germ out. One is you, you end up with a much lighter, fluffier flour. Uh, it's lighter. It rises higher. If you want to make croissants, just, 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 uh, uh, don't use whole wheat flour for that. Okay. <laughs> use it's, it's light. It's fluffy. It's, it's, it's good for making cakes and pastries and things like that. It's got a nicer, uh, delicate taste. You know, whole wheat flour has a kind of a strong nutty taste to it, I would say. The other thing with white flour is has a long shelf life. So if you want to go for mass production and storing this for a long time and lower cost, then white flour is clearly the way to go. So all these, there's all these advantages why, why the world shifted predominantly over to white flour. But there are a few disadvantages that come as well from going from whole wheat to white flour. One is, minor thing, you lose most of the nutritional value of the wheat, all right? Most of the nutritional value is not in the white part, it's in the, it's in the bran and, and the germ. So the, the fiber, the trace minerals, the vitamins, especially the B vitamins, are removed in this milling process with the, the rollers and separating up. And so after switching over to a diet of white flour, people started to notice that people were getting sick of all kinds of diseases that they didn't see before. Beriberi, pellagra, anemia, and other things. And, and it would, you know, other things would be you have much less fiber in your diet, so there'd be more cancers and things like this showing up. Uh, so it was a result of losing the critical nutritional components. And they didn't realize what was happening for decades later that the science caught up. So the Lord God put into the whole grain, I think of the 44 uh, nutrients that we need, vitamins and minerals, 40 of them exist in whole wheat. 
but a lot of them are milled out by the milling process. So, so what do the flour companies and bread making companies do after they realize, oh no, we're taking all the healthy stuff out of here and people are getting sick? Do they go back to whole wheat? No, you lose money by doing that. So, so what they did was they say, we'll take the white flour and we'll enrich it. We'll just put other things in to try to substitute some of what we took out. But of course, they don't cover the whole gamut, and it's not nearly as healthy as the whole flour was in the first place. So, lesson for us. Uh, In my opinion, most churches and most Christians are living on the equivalent of Wonder Bread. This is Wonder Bread Christianity, all right? You don't have the whole grain. You just, you mill it out so that it's the easy, the more easily digestible, lighter, fluffier stuff that's left, okay? Um, Just like we need the whole grain, all the different parts of the grain, and we we needed that even before the scientists caught up to understand what was in there and what was lost. I believe we need all of the Word of God. 2 Timothy 3, it says that, 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 that Paul tells Timothy that you've had the Holy Scriptures from infancy, from childhood. This is obviously, he's referring to the Old Testament because the New Testament didn't exist in Timothy's childhood. And he tells him all Scripture is inspired by God and is useful for for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness, or depending on what translation you have, I memorized it, the NIV, okay? But it's all useful. And this talking about the Old Testament. We need all of the scriptures. And a lot of Christians will focus on the New Testament, maybe some of the Psalms, or maybe some of Paul's letters. But he says, and you know, the Old Testament is three quarters of the Bible. Right? So, so we're saying we don't need that anymore. So, so it's one of the things is that we need that. Paul also said in, in Romans 15, verses 3 and 4, he quoted from a passage from Psalm 69. And then he says, for whatever things that were written in the past were written for our admonition. He's quoting from the Old Testament there. This is for us. Peter, Peter talks about it as being a light shining in a dark place. Uh, one of my heroes from... Uh, from the, the, the restoration movement about, he died a little over a hundred years ago, it was James A. Harding. And, uh, he's famous for, uh, folk, uh, for, uh, for preaching, for being just a really nice guy and, and for really advancing, uh, a relational view of, of God. He's understanding who God is and obeying God, but loving God and obeying God, and not just breaking the, the, the Christian faith down to a bunch of rules to be followed. It was much more than that. And one of the things I really appreciate about Harding was that when he died, one of his disciples preached the eulogy, and he said, he, he, he spoke about his mentor. He said, he is, he's one who set more people to reading the Bible than any other preacher. He infused his own love and appreciation for the Word into those who came under his sway. And so Harding would go around uh, 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 preaching everywhere, but everywhere he went, he would 
encouraged people. His love of the Word of God was infectious, and that pulled people along. But he also encouraged people to commit to reading the Bible through every year. You know, they read uh, three or four chapters a day. But he said reading every day and reading throughout the year and having account of, setting up voluntary accountability with each other. So they set up little Bible reading circles or groups where they would just talk to each other about this. And um, so he 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 really advanced this so that we could understand. So, you know, how, how you can't really love God unless you know who he is. And, and the way we get to know who God is is by reading the scriptures. He says God's the author of Bible. We should read it that we may know him. And uh, eight years before he died, he said that he had read the Old Testament through 60 times and the New Testament 130 times. So this is a man, he he loved the Word of God. He was completely immersed in it. So um, the uh, years ago, I was, I, was in a, I was in a large church. I was in a teacher's group in the church. And every year, we'd have, we'd have a meeting pretty much every year, and, and be near the beginning of the year, say, what do you think we need to teach this year? And, and usually they say, well, we need to teach uh, evangelism, we need to teach discipleship, we need to teach, you know, three or, three or four things. They're usually saying three or four things pretty much every year. Those are things we need to focus on. And, and I, you know, and they asked, well, Chuck, what do you think? And I always say the same thing. I said, let's just teach the entire Bible. And they, they, would, they would laugh at me. they say, you can't be serious. And I said, no, we don't have to teach the whole Bible in one year. We can take a few years, but let's just teach everything because I don't know what we need, but we need it all. And, and, and I, I believe that, uh, that that will produce a much healthier church. If we get the whole grain, we get all the word of God, the Old Testament, the New Testament, all the books. And that's why we do expository preaching here. I think it produces a much healthier church that isn't as susceptible to all the anemias and weird diseases that are that are popping up all over the place in the Christian world. So people said it wasn't practical, but it is practical. It's very practical. Uh, it will meet needs we don't even know that we had. Yeah. Okay? So... Um, don't go for the fluffy and rich version where they take, you know, take three quarters of the Bible out and then just inject a few things to try to replace it. We need it all and we'll suffer spiritual illnesses individually and as a church if we don't do that. So if you're not, there's nothing magical about reading the Bible an entire year, but I would say get in the Word of God deeply and read it all and make this a part of, of your own, your own spiritual life. That's the first, that's the first food example. All right. Second one. I just made that one up. The second one is actually based on scripture, and it's the story of the manna in the wilderness. Now, reason why reason why this this really matters to us. One of the reasons I got really serious about the Old Testament is I heard a lesson in my twenties where someone explained that the whole story of the Exodus is a map of the Christian life, and Paul talks about that in First Corinthians chapter ten. We've talked about this many times here. You know, Egypt is the old life, and then the people, the people are passed through the Red Sea. They got a wall of water on each side. They're born again of water and the Spirit. The Holy Spirit, uh, you know, uh, uh, is there in the form of a cloud. They're, they're baptized in Moses in the cloud and the sea, as Paul says there. And then they're, they're not in the promised land. They have 40 years of testing in the wilderness. And during that time, they're tested with different sins. This is, but they all, 
ate the spiritual food, that's the manna and, and, and the quail, and they all drank the spiritual drink. They drank from the rock that accompanied them. That rock was Christ. They're drinking from Christ, the water from the rock, and they're eating the manna every day to sustain them in the wilderness. And those who are faithful and don't fall to the stupid sins that Satan puts out as a trap for us, those who are faithful to the end made it into the promised land, Joshua and Caleb, as an example for us. So the manna in the wilderness was the food that sustained them on their journey for 40 years. The pillar of cloud and fire was the guide that led them all the way from Egypt to the promised land, which is foreshadowing the Holy Spirit for us. So this manna business, the sustain them every day during while their, their time in the desert, the Lord would feed them bread from heaven. So in Exodus 14, the people cross the Red Sea. They're out of Egypt. Exodus 15, they have the Song of Miriam. In Exodus 16, they run into the first problems as the people are complaining, wait a minute, we're in the desert. There's nothing to eat here. What are we going to do? Let's turn to Exodus 16. So this is this all part of what I say, the, sec the second parable of the three parables we're going to talk about today. Exodus 16, the story of the manna in the wilderness. I'm reading from Orthodox Study Bible, which is a translation based on Septuagint, but I think all the translations should be pretty much the same. Exodus 16, verse 1, Now they journeyed from Elam, and all the congregation of the children of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after they departed from the land of Egypt. Then the whole congregation of the children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron. The children of Israel said to them, Would that we had died, smitten by the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the pots of meat and ate bread to the full. For you brought us out into this desert to kill the whole assembly with hunger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I'll rain bread out of heaven, for you and the people shall go out and gather a certain quota every day, that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. So it shall be on the sixth day they shall prepare what they bring in, and it shall be twice as much as they gather daily. So the Lord, uh, people... And they were slaves, and they said they're looking back in the old time of slavery, and they say, "Wow, boy, didn't we have a good back in Egypt? You know, we had all the meat, we had all the the bread, we had the great food, and now we're going to starve to death in this in this desert." So the Lord says He's going to provide bread for them every day, but there are going to be some very specific instructions to see if they're going to do what the Lord says. So let's pick it up in verse. 11. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, I've heard the complaints of the children of Israel. Speak to them, saying, At twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know I'm the Lord your God. So the, the quail uh, comes down. Uh, verse 13. So it was quail came in the evening and covered the camp, and in the morning dew lay all around the camp. But when the layer of dew lifted, there on the surface of the desert was a small, round substance, white like coriander seed, like frost on the ground. So when the children of Israel saw it, they said to one another, What's this? 
for they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, this is the bread the Lord gives you to eat. This is what the Lord has ordered. Let every man gather for his family one ummer, according to the head count, and number the souls among you. Each one should gather it with those who share your tents. Then the children of Israel did so and gathered, some more, some less. So when they measured it by ummers, he who gathered much had nothing left over. He who gathered little had no lack. Each gathered according to the need of those sharing the tent with him. Moses then said, let no one leave any of it till morning. Notwithstanding, they did not heed Moses, but some of them left part of it until morning. And it bred worms and stank. So Moses was angry with them. Thus they gathered it every morning, every man according to his need. And when the sun became hot, it melted. So pay attention to the details of this story because all of them are going to become important to us very shortly. So uh, they gather it every day and Moses says, don't store it up. Because if you do, I mean, I, I, maggots are like the most disgusting thing I can ever think of. You know, I, <laughs> but to think that this, this food that you're going to eat, you look in the pot the next day and it's, it's like maggot infested. It stinks and there are worms in it and it's, it's gross. So Moses said, just enough for the day. And then before the Sabbath, you'll collect enough for two days because uh, you're not supposed to go out and work on the Sabbath. So, th- so he had very specific instructions. So first instruction was, don't store it up. Just collect enough for the day. What do the people do? The Lord tests them. They don't do what he says. And they, it, it doesn't go well for them. Right? Verse 22. So it was on the sixth day they gathered twice as much bread, two ummers for each one. All the rulers of the congregation came and told Moses. Then he said to them, this is the word the Lord has spoken. Tomorrow is the Sabbath, a holy rest of the Lord. Bake what you'll bake, boil what you'll boil, lay up for yourselves all that remains to be kept until morning. So they laid up till morning as Moses commanded them. But it did not stink, nor were there any worms in it. Then Moses said, eat that today, for today is the Sabbath of the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, which is the Sabbath, there will be none. Now it happened, some of the people went out on the seventh day to gather, but they found none. Then the Lord said to Moses, how long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? Behold, the Lord has given you this day as a Sabbath. Therefore, on the sixth day, he gave you bread for two days. Let every man remain in his house. Let no one go out of his place on the seventh day. Thus, the people rested on the seventh day. So this is, so second, second rule the Lord gave is don't go out on the Sabbath to gather anything. So what do the people do? Okay. Hey, it showed up for six days. Let's go and see if it just, maybe it's curiosity. Let's just go see what happens on the seventh day. So the Lord is angry because they're not following the clear instructions that he gave them. Verse 31. Now the children of Israel called its name manna and it was white like coriander seed. And the taste of it like was like wafers made with honey. Then Moses said, this is the thing the Lord commanded, fill an ummer with manna to be kept in your gener- for your generations so they may see the bread you ate in the desert when the Lord led you out of the land of Egypt. Moses then said to Aaron, take a golden pot, put one full ummer of manna in it, lay it up before God to be kept for your generations. 
as the Lord commanded Moses, so Aaron laid it up before the testimony to be kept. Thus the children of Israel ate the manna for 40 years until they came into an inhabited land. They ate manna until they came to the border of Phoenicia. And we should read in, I think it's uh, Joshua chapter 5. That's exactly what happened. So this, this continued for 40 years. For six days, they would have the manna. And then when they crossed over, they crossed the Jordan River and they ate the bread from, from the new land, from the promised land. Then the manna stopped at that point in time. So this is exactly what the Lord said was going to happen. Uh, so some things we learn about the manna. One is you, you, it's little flakes on the ground that they gathered up. They gathered it in the morning. It says, but when the sun came out in the heat of the day, it melted away. Another thing, it says you could bake it or you could boil it. So it could be prepared a few different ways. The other thing is it says that it it, uh, it had a sweet taste to it. It tastes like wafers made with honey. It's got a pleasant, sweet taste. Uh, and then Aaron is told, you see, you collect an ummer for each person. That was the daily allotment. He was told, take one ummer and put it in a golden jar and keep it by the Ark of the Covenant for generations in the future to remind people for generation after generation after generation that this was how the Lord fed you in the wilderness. So God, there's an important lesson here I don't want anyone to forget. All right? So you keep that by the Ark of the Covenant for future generations. They're sustained for the entire journey. So if the 40 years in the wilderness is 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 a is a type or a map of the Christian life, then what is the what is the the manna supposed to represent for us? Uh this is what sustained them during their time of testing. It's what's going to sustain us during our time of testing as well. Numbers chapter 11. So this is this is uh Numbers chapter 11. So this the story here is this is about uh, six weeks after they left Egypt. We just read when they uh, the, the manna the manna comes and and they spend about two a year and a half a uh, year and a half at uh, Mount Sinai. So after they break camp from Mount Sinai, Numbers chapter 11. So this is about two years into the journey. It says that the mixed multitude that came with them when they left Egypt, there's some some of the Egyptians who came along as well. Uh, it said that the mixed multitude, the, the Egyptians who were with them, who are fellow travelers, were longingly looking back on the good old days back in Egypt. And they had intense cravings. And they said, we remember the fish that we ate freely in Egypt, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, the garlic, all this tasty food. But now our whole being is dried up. There's nothing at all except this manna before our eyes. So uh, uh, the people were weeping, and, and it's this, this infects the whole group, this, this complaining. People were looking back. So this is near the beginning of the journey. People are complaining about the manna. And you, you think about that. You come home after, after a hard day's trek in the wilderness. You say, what's for dinner tonight? And the answer would always be the same, manna. So wait a minute, I had that, I had that the last 500 
nice for dinner. It's manna. So it's, well, no, but it's going to be boiled manna tonight. No, it's going to be baked manna. It's going to be fricasseed manna. We're going to have manna on the shish kebab manna. I don't, it, it, you find different ways to prepare it, but it was always the same thing. And people got, even though it has sweet taste to it, people got tired of it. And they wanted the variety that they had back in Egypt. So this is near the beginning of, of their time in the wilderness and, and Numbers chapter 11. And then in Numbers 21, near the end of their time in the wilderness, let's turn there. This is in the story of the famous story of the bronze serpent that Jesus refers to in John chapter 3. It's foreshadowing the cross. Numbers chapter 21 and verse 4. Then they departed from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea. So this is near the end of the 40 years. They went around the land of Eden. People became discouraged on the way. So the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why did you bring us out of Egypt to kill us in the desert? There's no bread, no water. Our soul is weary with this worthless bread. So, the people are sick and tired of the manna that sustained them for 40 years. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 8, this is, a, everybody, you, you know I'm going there, so I'm going to go there. Number, Deuteronomy chapter 8. So Deuteronomy is, Moses is retelling the story, and warning the people about what's going to happen in the future right before he dies. Deuteronomy chapter 8, and he explains what they're supposed to take away from this being fed for 40 years with manna. In verse 2, now you shall remember the whole way the Lord your God led you in the desert to deal harshly with you and test you, to know what was in your heart, whether you'd keep his commandments or not. So he dealt harshly with you and weakened you with hunger, and fed you with manna, which your fathers did not know, that he might make you know, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word proceeding from the mouth of God, man shall live. So, it's famous saying, but Jesus, this sounds familiar, it's because Jesus says this, he responds to Satan. But Satan attempts him three times. After he's baptized and he goes out in the wilderness, he responds with the word of God all three times. And one of the times he, he, he says, man does not live by bread alone when Satan wants him to break his fast, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So he's quoting from this passage right here. Um, so Moses said that that lesson of feeding the people with manna daily for 40 years was to teach them a lesson. That's why they had to keep a jar of the manna by the, by the Ark of the Covenant for future generations, to remind them, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. That's the lesson. So what do we learn from the details of the story of manna? God gave very specific instructions, and I think in all the details of this story, there are wonderful lessons hidden in the story for us. Uh, one is, they couldn't store it up. You couldn't go out and just, just collect enough 
for three or four days. You had to go out and collect it every single day. Can anyone think of a possible application for us in that? Okay. <laughs> Obvious. We need it every day. You know, a lot, a lot of people, and, and we have we have a lot of, of, of uh, young families here, people with one or more small children. And uh, my heart especially goes out to the mothers here of small children who uh, this is tougher, tougher for you than for anybody, but even the fathers too. Uh, it, and it's a challenge. And uh, I, I'm, I'm always, I'm always uh, pounding the, the, the young men on this is, you know, how are you doing in your personal devotion to the word of God? And the answer I, a lot of times I get is, man, I, I, I'm just so busy. I'm so stretched. I just feel like I don't have time to be in the Word of God every day. Uh, I'm just too busy. And so my my follow-on question, I'm, I'm giving, you know, I'm just I'm 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 preparing you for when I'm gonna challenge you. You don't you know everything I'm gonna say in advance. So my I I I, I general response is, oh really, you're too busy to be fed by the word of God every day. Well, did you did you have time to eat today? Uh, did you have time to eat yesterday? Oh, oh, well, yeah, I had breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Yeah. Oh, so that's not the problem. You're not too busy. You're busy enough to feed your body, but you're not. You're not. So, but you're, but you're too busy to feed your soul, which is more important. Jesus is quoting this after fasting for forty days. Uh, so, point taken. It's obvious. I don't need. I don't need to beat you up with this. I, th- I think you get that. All right. The other thing was sweet to the taste, which is, which is nice. I think of in, in Psalm uh, 119, it talks about the word of God is like, like honey, like honeycomb, sweet to the taste. You know, another thing here is some people got bored with it. After a while, and this is decades, some people got bored and they wanted more variety in their diet. They lost their gratitude and they started complaining and they looked they looked longingly back on all the things that they could eat when they were in Egypt. And, and particularly, you know, what, what is it that people turn to when they're bored? It's this little, the little devices in our hands, okay? Uh, uh, the, 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 the iPhones, the computers, the internet, just the various stimulation that the world offers us, the variety of the world. Uh, another thing here, that I noticed is that it only appears in the morning. Did anybody notice that? It appears in the morning, and then it says, when the heat of the sun came up, it melted away. Um, They had to gather it before the sun became hot and it melted. Now, think about this. You could boil the manna. You could bake the manna. But when the sun came out, it melted away. Does that make any sense at all? No, that makes no sense. This is miraculous. Why would God do that? Why wouldn't you just leave it there all day long? Okay, it's got to be collected in the morning before the heat of the sun comes out. Now, uh, let's turn to Wisdom of, Sol- wisdom of Solomon. Uh, this is in... Wisdom of Solomon was in the original King James, in the Catholic and Orthodox Bibles. It was in the King James till about 150 years ago when it got got uh, pulled out 
uh, of there. Dave Berceau has a really good lesson on the, the, the Deuterocanonicals, these seven additional books that are uh, not in the modern Protestant Bibles and uh, a strength of strength. If, if you have questions about that, De- Deuteronomy, I'm sorry, Wisdom of Solomon chapter 16. He's talking about, starting in verse 26, uh, he's, he's talking about the how God took care of the people in the wilderness, referring back to the Numbers 21 story. Your children whom you love, the Lord might learn. That is not the production of crops that feeds man, but your word that maintains those who believe in you. For what was not destroyed by fire was melted when simply warmed by a small ray of the sun to make it known that one must get up before sunrise to give you thanks and to intercede before you at the dawning of the light. For the hope of an unthankful man will melt like the wintry frost and flow away like useless water. So that's the point he's saying there is that there's a lesson for us. Now, some people say, I'm not a morning person, okay? And, and, and that's fine. This is not, it's, not like a, it's not like a law. It's not like a rule or requirement. It's an example. And personally, uh, I do way better when I put the Word of God first at the beginning of the day rather than later in the day because I get too busy and too distracted by other things. And, and uh, so, so I, that, that to me, I think that's, that's a great, great lesson for us. And the author of Wisdom of Solomon saw the same thing there. So many things for us to learn here. Third, third example, Leviticus chapter 11, third parable. This is shorter, simpler one. There's good things to learn from all of these. From Leviticus chapter 11 is the discussion about the clean and the unclean animals. Now, some of our favorite foods here in New England would be considered unclean food, all right? What's New England famous for? Lobsters? They'd be unclean. Fried clams. I mean, we're just a few miles away from Ipswich, which is the home of the fried clam, a wonderful health food here if you want to die early of a heart attack. So <laughs> clams, oysters, shellfish, okay, pulled pork. You know, we'll probably have some of that over on the side here. So the... the uh, uh, those are all unclean, unclean foods. So uh, we're no longer bound by the Levitical laws. But in Colossians chapter 2, Paul says that the things in the law were a shadow of things to come. They point to the reality. He talks about how circumcision, putting away the flesh, was a foreshadowing of baptism. So now that you have the reality, you no longer go back to the shadows. But the shadows point to the reality here. So let's th- consider that when we're reading this in Leviticus 11. What might this be foreshadowing? Levi- Leviticus 11 and 1. Now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying to them, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, These are the animals you may eat among the animals of the earth. Whatever divides the hoof, having cloven hooves and chewing the cud, that you may eat. Nevertheless, these you shall not eat among those that chew the cud or have cloven hooves. The camel, because it chews the cud but does not have cloven hooves, is unclean to you. The rock hyrax, because it chews the cud but does not have cloven hooves, is unclean to you. The hare, because it chews the cud but does not have cloven hooves, is unclean to you. 
and the swine. Though it divides the hoof, having cloven hooves, yet it does not chew the cud. It is unclean to you. Their flesh you shall not eat, and their carcasses you shall not touch. They are unclean to you. Okay, let's process this, all right? Simple rule. For, for mammals, sea creatures is a different story. Mammals, two requirements. And it has to be two for two. One out of two is not good enough, okay? Well, split hooks, all right? So you have, to, you have a hoof, but it's split in hand, all right? Cloven hooks. You have to have that, and it has to chew the cud. Chewing the cud, if you sometimes you look out in the field and there's a cow or a sheep that's out there and it's chewing and chewing and chewing. But if you look for a while, it didn't actually eat anything while you were watching. So what, what an animal chewing the cud does is it will, it will, it will, uh, it will uh, bite and swallow some grass and take it down into his stomach. And then later on, it will cough it up and start chewing it again, and then swallow it down again. So it will, it will, there's a call ruminants. So it's ruminating, <laughs> ruminating on the grass. So a cow has, it only has one stomach. I, I did some research on this. A cow has one stomach, but there are four chambers in the stomach. So what the cow will do, it has, the gods designed the cow so that it can extract I mean, if we had to eat grass, we'd die. There's just not enough nutrient in it that we, we can't access it. But the cow has a complicated digestive system and multiple chambers of the stomach, and then it will, it will chew it, but then it will cough it up and then chew it and grind it more and more and more, process it to get all the nourishment out of it, which we can't get out, okay? So I hope that's got your mind thinking that. So it's got to be... It, to be a clean animal, it's got to have split hooves and it's got to be a ruminant. It's got to chew, it's got to chew the cut. So, and he gives some examples. He said, like rabbits, rabbits chew the cut, but they have paws. They don't have split hooves. Pigs have split hooves or trotters, right? But they don't chew the cut. In fact, what do pigs eat? If pigs eat anything. They eat garbage. I mean, they, they, anything you, you take all your leftovers and your scraps and you feed it to the pigs because pigs, they, you know, pigs are the classic example of you don't want to be like a pig, right? Don't be like a pig. The pigs, don't be like the pig that's washed that goes and dives back into the mud again. Pigs love to wallow in mud and they eat garbage. So, lesson for us. Irenaeus was an early Christian writer who was one step removed from the apostles. I believe in his youth, he learned from Polycarp. Irenaeus was a bishop of Lyon and, and France. And he's talking about this. And he says, um, this is, and I'll, I'll put this in the notes. We'll put this up on, on, on the website here, but I'll, I'll kind of summarize it. This is Ananicene Father's uh, volume one, page 534. And he said, the split hooks, he says, he's, well, first of all, he says, he says the ruminating, the chewing on the pure grass, he says, those are people who are meditating on the word of God. I think of Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who meditates on the word of God day and night. So the idea is that you not only do you eat eat the grass, the pure grass, not the garbage, but you chew on it 
and chew on it and chew on it. You think about it. You think about what does this mean? How does this apply to my life? What, what is God calling me to do? What do I learn about God? That, that requires mental work. So it's not just reading it, but it's reading it and processing it, chewing on it, thinking about it, okay? The pra- what are the practical implications for my own life? That's the hard work. But if you want to get the nourishment out of the pure grass, that's what it's going to take. So God is teaching us a lesson about that. Irenaeus says that, that it's, it's the... Those who are meditating on the word of God day and night are like the ruminants who are chewing. Okay, not just not just having 15 minute, uh, you know, 20 minute quiet times and, and just devour it and go on, but you got to chew it th- throughout the day. He said the other thing is that the split hooves, and you think about this a, a horse or a camel has one monolithic hoof, but other animals like pigs or sheep or cattle have split hooves. Well, split hooves are good. If you want to climb up, up, up in a mountain, okay, because they help you, help you to keep your balance, a split hoof. And so Ernest is explaining, it says, those with split hooves are those who believe in the Father and the Son, okay? He says the Jews are like the camels or the horse. They do meditate on the Word of God, but they only Put there, they only believe in the Father. They don't believe in the Son. So we have to believe in the Father and the Son and meditate on the Word of God day and night if we want to be a clean animal. So powerful lesson for us to be a ruminant. We, we have the split hooves and to be a ruminant. Now, so there's so many lessons that God uses animals you know, throughout the scripture, don't muzzle an ox while it's treading out the grain. Uh, it's not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Proverbs 6, go to the ant, you sluggard. Jesus uses four in Matthew 10, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. So God uses animals to teach us significant spiritual lessons. And the early Christians saw one more example of this. So uh, there's a lot more I could say, but but uh, I'll just I'll just stop I'll just stop there and leave you with those three parables. And the nice thing about a parable is once you get it in your head, it's kind of hard to ever lose it. It's it's, it's a picture that's stuck in your brain. So I want you to remember that and carry that around with you is the parable of the whole grain. We need it all. We don't know what we need. There's stuff in there that we need that we don't even know it. We need the whole grain, the whole word of God. We can't refine part of it out. Number one, if we want to be healthy Christians and healthy church. And then number two, the story of the the manna. This is the bread that sustains us. We need it fresh, gathered every day. For most people, that's going to be in the morning before the sun comes out. And God, God uh, gave very specific instructions about that. But you can't, you can't store it up once a week on Sunday morning and think you're going to coast for the rest of the week. We need to be, we need to be feeding on the word of God every day. God fed them every day to teach us Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And then the clean and unclean animals. That Not only do we have to feed on the word of God in the morning, but meditate on it throughout the day. 
uh, day and night. Uh, so we'll, uh, there's a lot more I could say, but I'll stop there, Amen.